welcome, welcome, welcome to Wellbeing Wednesdays. I am your host, Courtney Weaver. I'm also the director of WellWVU here at West Virginia University. Happy New Year. I can't believe it's 2022. And again, we're still in the middle of a pandemic, so lots of good and not so good times there. But with me today is one of my favorite people at the university, and that is Sam Wilmoth. And he is the Senior Title IX Education Specialist over in the Division of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion and friend of the show. So Welcome to Sam. And for those who are not uh, familiar with Sam's work, Sam, why don't you sort of introduce yourself and your role at the university? Sure. And, and you're one of my favorite people at the university, too. So I feel so affirmed and happy to be here. Yay. So I do a lot of things for the Division of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And the, the main one, I guess, that, that I would highlight, because it's the most likely place that your audience may have seen me, is I do a lot of training and educational events on topics ranging from addressing abusive relationships uh, all the way to dealing with implicit bias. So or really any kind of program that's about making this community safer and more fair, you know, DDEI is there for it. And you may see me there. So that's that's a good summary of, of a lot of what I do. Yeah, you're, you're a busy man. So what we're talking about today is something that I know that your division has put a lot of resources into, particularly last semester, because you contracted with this great organization called NTAB. And for those who don't know, NTAB stands for N Technology uh, Enabled Abuse Online. They're an organization that's out in California, but this, that's what they focus on is ending technology-enabled abuse. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Give everyone sort of a little primer of what it might look like, the types of abuse, and how to keep yourself safe online. Because there are some steps that you can take to not necessarily ensure your own safety, but can help, can help in a lot of different ways. So Sam, when you hear that term technology-enabled abuse, like what does that mean for our audience? How would you describe it in layman's terms? Yeah, and, and this is a term that can be difficult to describe succinctly. In fact, one of the things that you'll see is that in the literature about this kind of abuse, there's not necessarily even broad agreement about which term to use. Oh. So you'll see... Um, technology-enabled abuse, technology-facilitated uh, abuse, digital abuse, online abuse. I mean, everyone is trying to come up with a, a good way of framing and, and succinctly describing this problem. But one of the things that I think we'll run into over and over in this discussion is that technology moves faster, not only than the laws that are supposed to regulate, yeah. but also in our capacity to study its effects. And so very often we end up with a widely adopted technology, some new social media platform or device, for example. Right. And there isn't even a broad agreement yet in the research community about what it's even doing to us. And that is something that I find consistently unnerving. Before I give a kind of example definition of this concept, I'd like to do a little disclaimer, if that's okay. okay. I want to I want to say something nice about the internet. I want and I think that's important because people are going to listen to this conversation and they're going to say, Sam is grumpy and out of touch and he hates everything on the internet. And that's not 100% right. That's like 66% right. I don't hate the internet. There's lots about the internet that I think is great. I used to have a shelf in my home growing up that was just filled with these encyclopedias. And anytime you had a question about the world, you, you just hope it was in that book. And yeah. most of the time, it wasn't. And now if I have just like the most random question 
you know, what, what's a list of Sandra Bullock's highly highest grossing films? Like I can find that. It's weird, but great. And if you're a member of a, of a community that has experienced oppression or discrimination, if you were you know, the one teenager that you knew of in your small town who identified as trans, for example, and you just wanted to find a community of people who could answer questions, who could you know, make you feel accepted, like you could find that on the internet. And that is amazing yes. and important. And yeah. so before I just like dunk endlessly on social media companies or, or, or whatever, I just want to acknowledge the positive first. Okay. Yeah. So when we're talking about this kind of technology, um, unfortunately, there is the potential for abuse. And, you know, there's different definitions that we could use. So the National Domestic Violence Hotline has a definition for what they call digital abuse. That is the use of technology such as texting and social networking to bully, harass, stalk, or intimidate a partner. Now, that's one element of it, but there's a pretty big loophole in there, which is that um, you don't have to be romantically partnered with someone, unfortunately, um, to experience abuse at their hands online. And so, for instance, you might see uh, cyber stalking, where the, the stalker is an acquaintance of um, the victim or survivor, but there's not necessarily a romantic relationship. So none of these definitions or terms are, are perfect. But one thing I guess I would say is that as technology becomes increasingly sophisticated, there are more and more, quote unquote, real world activities that will have online or virtual reality kind of analogs. And what that means is that there are, there'll be more and more experiences in our lives where we could experience some kind of, you know, pleasure or fun, certainly, but also where an abusive person um, might be able, you know, to in engage in some kind of violence or harassment. Somewhat recently, I was listening to a commentator talking about the upcoming metaverse. And that commentator was talking about people buying digital furniture. And I was like, that sounds so dumb. But, you know, like in 10 years, th that take I just gave might not have aged well, you might really enjoy um, your digital footstool or whatever. And, and so I think that we need to be aware that as technology occupies more and more of our social life, that the opportunities for abuse, unfortunately, could grow. So we need to stay on top of this. Yeah. And we're not just talking about a single type of abuse either. There are many different no. categories that this could fall under. So maybe let's talk a little bit about, you know, the different types that we might see and where we might see them. Because, for example, if we're talking about, you know, sexual abuse or sexual violence, we might be talking about revenge porn. But then if we're talking about stalking, we can also be thinking about those non-consensual tracking situations where they're using things like air tags or the tiles, which aren't, which people might not automatically assume could be used for that purpose, but they definitely can. So what are your, what are your thoughts on all of that? Well, there's definitely a, a lot of different kinds of abuse involving a lot of different kinds of technology. Um, the air tags or the tiles are a really good example. These are like small tracking devices that could be you know, planted in a car or dropped into a purse or a bag. And, and they have all kinds of practical purposes. Maybe you just have a dog that runs away a lot and, and right. you want to you know, put one on its collar. Yeah. But a lot of technologies that have an obvious practical 
purpose can be appropriated in this way. Unfortunately, one thing I would say about the different types of abuse, just sort of generally, is that they often um, tend to have intersectional angles. That is, like if you're experiencing harassment online, you know, it, it could involve things like someone threatening um, to release embarrassing content, like a nude photo of you, yeah. um, or someone impersonating you or, or releasing your, your address or your contact information that's called doxing. But often what also gets incorporated is other ugly stuff, racism and sexism and, you know, anti-LGBTQ plus bias. And so very often when people are targeted for, you know, this, this kind of harassment, there's not like one way to understand it without reference to the specific life experiences and identities of victims. But is it helpful maybe to run through different types of, of abuse specifically? I, I, and, and I talk think about so. Them? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Let's do it. It's, it this is All right, let's do it. I could, we can do whatever <laughs> we want. So it's, it's this, I mean, this part's going to be bleak, but I think it's important. Like we need to really understand um, the, the different ways in which abusive people can try to, you know, it, engage in in controlling and, and harmful behavior. Um, yeah. well, and, I, and, I, and I think something else that may be a little shocking to listeners, but it's also when we're talking about this, they might see some of their own behavior reflected in that because who has ever left, you know, a negative comment on someone's picture or review for a, a restaurant or I don't know, just things like that, that we don't often see of as necessarily falling into these categories, but could easily qualify as such. So I think that's something to think about too. Just yeah, to- and and I think that you know sometimes what you see is you know certain kinds of, of behavior that we might have recognized once or twice in our lives that that if it were put together into a broader would constitute something like you know harassment or or stalking and and this is actually um, not new when we talk about evaluating stalking in in the real world specifically because often in, in studies of stalking if you ask people you know, have you ever been stalked? By and large, they tend to say no. But if you have behaviorally specific questions, like has a former romantic partner ever followed you around, you know, joined the same gym as you left gifts outside your door or, or notes in the windshield wiper of your car, you ask all these specific questions. And the same people who say, well, I've never been stalked before will say, well, that's happened. And so is that. And so is that. And, right. and so they might not necessarily frame their experiences as stalking. But online, you know, not only um, could stalking involve non-consensual tracking in the real world as through, you know, air tags or, or, or tiles or, or whatever, but it could also involve online tracking, whether that's keystrokes or, you know, web history or, you know, an account on social media that you think is private, kind of a lurker account. And, and nonetheless, the, the details of, you know, who you are become exposed. And it can really also dovetail with other kinds of intrusive behavior. So someone might take control of another person's social media accounts and use that as a way of spreading rumors about them or impersonating them and behaving in embarrassing ways. And these are all different tactics that people engaged in stalking might do. You can also see a, you know, a connection here to sexual violence. And you referenced this already, what's what's commonly known as um, revenge porn. And this is another spot where, because this is a rel- relatively new kind of abuse in the literature, we're still sort of struggling. What do we call it? And I'm not wild about the name revenge porn for a couple of different reasons. One is that it doesn't adequately capture 
the harm being done. The, the second is that revenge porn is often um, the, the label used on exploitative websites that actually non-consensually post this, this content. So implicit in the description of revenge porn is, oh, well, this is you know titillating or sexy. And, and I think it's actually just violent and abusive, right? And so in the literature, you'll see other names for it. You'll see things like non-consensual pornography or image-based sexual abuse. And what everyone is trying to struggle with is how do we capture the harm here? Because also implicit in the term revenge porn is, is a kind of theory about motivation, right? Namely that it's about revenge. And that is, of course, one reason that an abusive person could non-consensually post um, a nude or something like that of someone else. But there are other possible motivations like profit, right? Where someone is stealing private images and then putting them, uh, threatening to put them on a website as a kind of extortion. That doesn't really get captured in you know, the term revenge porn. But one thing I always go back to, or at least haven't in the last year or so, is there's this 2020 paper by Claire uh, McGlynn and, and colleagues and in the title, there's a description of a survivor of image-based sexual abuse. Um, and the title of the paper is, It's Torture for the Soul, the Harms of Image-Based Sexual Abuse. And I keep returning to that phrase, torture for the And it, it really lands with a thud. But a lot of times people who have been you know, victimized in this way by just like awful abusive folks, they have this sense that the harm that was done to them is it's permanent that, you know, once a, a picture that was meant to be private gets exposed to their friends or to, to family, it is, it's really traumatizing in a way that sticks with them. And the early research on this, um, unfortunately, really backs this up. Now, given how fast all this changes, I'll try to recommend some organizations from time to time that your listeners can look in on. Um, certainly one of them is NTAP that you already referenced. But for um, image-based sexual abuse, there's a group called um, the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative that I would really recommend um, that folks um, take a look at. They've been instrumental in developing a kind of legal structure for dealing with image-based sexual abuse. At present, I believe 48 states have laws against someone sharing a private image of someone else. And there is not, to my knowledge, a, a federal law against this, which means that if it happens over state lines, things can get complicated really quickly. But there is one that might potentially be in the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women's Act, which I believe is now in the Senate. And that part of the reauthorization of VAWA is called the SHIELD Act. That's stopping harmful image exploitation and limiting distribution. So there is reason to believe that progress is being made. But I will say that often survivors of this kind of abuse, at least initially, aren't sure um, where to go. And we can maybe talk about reporting options um, a little bit later in the discussion. Yeah. I remember reading an article, or maybe it was a, a news segment, about a person who was a victim of this. And it was one of the first cases, if not the first case, that was brought through law enforcement. And what the survivor had to do was basically copyright her own body. And yeah. that's how they got the person who did this to her because it was technically copyright infringement because they used her pictures without technically paying for them, quote unquote, which is just sickening. Like that, that's sickening to me. So yeah, to, to yeah. feel as if you don't have ownership yes. over your own body. I, I, I can, I can only imagine yeah. um, 
how awful that must feel. And, and the law that was often used to, to use like sort of copyright law and address this problem, you know, especially six or seven years ago um, yeah. would have been the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And, and often the way we think of this is if you create some kind of creative or artistic product, then you you have rights to how it is used. And so often when these images or videos would be maybe stolen from someone's phone that was hacked, inappropriately shared by a former romantic partner, then you know the, the survivor in those days would, would use the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and, and other laws to try to ask websites to take this down. Hey, this is my selfie. I took it. You don't have the rights to do that. Now, that's, um, as you said, I think it's pretty depressing in a lot of ways. And it's also like that, you know, game in in old arcades, that whack-a-mole game, right? It's that like someone would take it down from one website and then it would appear, you know, the same image or the same video would appear elsewhere. And there are actually even takedown services that you can hire that will that will try to stay on top of this kind of thing. But this is why an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, that we really need a shared understanding that if someone who's partnered with you, for example, shares a private image, then um, you have a huge moral obligation to keep that private. And a failure to do so is abuse. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, I, I think, you know, one of the experiences, unfortunately, that many survivors of this kind of abuse have. Yeah, that's for sure. Now, what about folks who use technology to financially abuse their partners like what are your thoughts on that there's unfortunately a lot of you know opportunity here for people who are willing to do harm and a good way of contextualizing this is to ask the listener for a second to just like pause the podcast and look at your phone and just count the number of apps that have some kind of private information associated with them it's, it it will be shocking to you just how many times you've put in, you know, something like an address or a credit card number. And that means that there's lots of potential points of failure. That is, there are lots of potential places where a hacker or some other bad actor could get a hold of that information and, you know, often in, engage in things like, you know, purchases that you never knew you were uh, making, for example. And so there are a lot of opportunities for financial exploitation, and some of them are quite surprising. So, for example, early adopters of, you know, some popular social media platform will often get access to really good usernames. So if I was like the first Sam Wilma to get into, I don't know, Instagram or something, yeah. and I got that that highly coveted, you know, Sam.Wilma <laughs> handle or whatever, right? right? Um, that, that sometimes, you know, there are groups of hackers who will target those accounts precisely because if they um, hack an account of that kind, they can sell it to some other Sam Wilmoth who like really wants that simple username. This is sometimes called like OG username. And so what you end up with um, is a situation where um, someone could take control of an account and, you know, and end up saying, well, you can either buy this back from me or I will sell it to someone else. And so that's another place that where you, you know, of all the, the grift in, in our society, that's not something that I would have imagined very quickly. And yet the people engaged in this kind of theft and exploitation, you know, they may not really have morals, but they're unfortunately quite clever about um, hurting people. Right. And I think it's also important to find out it's not just hackers that we're worried about, but it could be 
like previous romantic partners, if you had linked Absolutely. accounts for something as simple as they talked about this in the end tab, one of the end time presentations that I watched about just like Grubhub or, you know, or things like that, where you can order food, find out where people are located. So that kind of is that intersectionality piece that you were mentioning earlier, but just like sharing a bank account or really sharing any kind of like a PayPal account, anything like that can be, can, should be approached with caution really at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. And and we never want to get to a place, especially when we're, when we're working with young people who are, you know, even more online than both of us, I would assume. Right. How do you feel about how I just described young people as being a separate group from both of us? I, I didn't really think that through, but. Well, you know, it's okay because I like before we started recording this, I was thinking about um, uh, like OnlyFans and how I learned mm-hmm. so much from watching the presentation because I'm just like this naive approaching middle age woman at this point. And I'm like, I can't keep up with everything that happens. I don't under really stand like TikTok. Like I don't, I don't get it. I, I like to watch the videos. I don't want to make them. And I, oh, I have the app on my phone. I have no idea how it works. So I'm okay with not being a young person anymore. Good. good. I'm glad we, we could have edited it out if you didn't right. like it. No, but, we're good. We're good. <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about both um, of those platforms here in, in a moment. But one of the things that I always want to um, make sure we don't is give kind of categorical advice, um, especially to younger folks about like, well, what you need to do is just like not right. use social media platforms or not use the internet. Right. That is not only unrealistic, it would be like monstrously unfair, right? You should have the right to build an online community of your choosing without being abused or exploited. Having said that, I think that there is room for us to try to be as thoughtful as we can when we're sharing sensitive information, like a password for Grubhub account, for instance. And so I do um, think that it's worth, you know, thinking about some, you know, general security tips. And I know that we'll get to that later in, in the show. You know, I, I guess I would just ask if, if you're um, dating someone and they're demanding, you know, or, or even just like nicely asking over and over again for like all your login information, that would be something that would just give me a little pause. Yeah. because. Even before all of these, you know, platforms started springing up, it was actually quite normal for even very close, you know, romantic partners to nonetheless have parts of their lives that were somewhat private. And that's, that's okay, right? If uh, one partner has, you know, is really into hiking and the other isn't, like, then it's even pretty normal for that one person to go hiking while the other one stays at home and does something else. And um, the idea that that partner, you know, 20 years ago would have been like, if you were going hiking, I need a live stream of what you're doing at all times would have been like ridiculous sounding. And, right. and yet when it comes to all of these platforms, sometimes I worry that we are not quite, you know, well-versed in, in a kind of boundary setting, you know, conversation about actually, you know, my passwords. And, and you know, I, I, that's a, a general recommendation I would make is that we just think critically before we, we share that. Now, to be clear, someone can set all kinds of boundaries and still, unfortunately, be, you know, victimized or harmed by someone. And it is never the survivor's fault. But I do think as we're thinking about our own boundaries, what we're comfortable with and what we're not, it, it's really helpful to ask ourselves a question like, why does my partner want all of these passwords? And yeah. um, that's something I remember. Yeah. Well, I mean, keeping along that vein, you know, what is your, some of your advice? And, and I know we don't want to give very specific things of like, well, don't have a Grubhub account because that's not going <laughs> to fly. Um, yeah, you gotta eat. 
yeah. You, gotta, yeah, you gotta eat and sometimes you don't want to cook so it's fine but how do we keep our relate how do we have these healthy relationships how do we draw these boundaries like what are some of the ways we can you know stay safer maybe not safe but safer online what's what would you recommend so I, I'd recommend a couple of things, bearing in mind that technology obviously changes really fast and, and some of these recommendations might be out of date very quickly, right? <laughs> the time this airs, the, the, it's no longer out. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, as we're thinking about the, the basic dynamics of, you know, a healthy relationship, that can obviously take a lot of forms, but I think there are some sort of bedrock things that we're all looking for, things like trust with a romantic partner and the ability to to set boundaries and to to talk about the things that are bothering us right and and those things are evergreen right they're not going to be irrelevant in you know 2050 or whatever right. so part of what i would start with before we get to technology specific advice is to just ask you to think about what you want you know from a relationship romantic or otherwise in the quote unquote real world like try to think of some first principles here. Probably part of what you want is to feel like unconditionally loved by, you know, your partners, um, by your friends. Probably part of what you want is, you know, to feel trusted by those same people and to be able to trust them in turn. This may sound like reading card stuff, but I think it's really helpful yeah. for listeners to, to actually articulate this for themselves and, and ask themselves how this applies to technology use. And so if you have um, a romantic partner who is, again, demanding all of your login information and, and, and passwords, then that to me is something that, that would violate quite a few of the principles of things I would be looking for in a relationship just sort of generally. Yeah. And there is some technology-specific advice that, you know, I, I'm not a computer scientist. And I, I again, I know this advice is going to change, but I, I, I do think a lot of it is, is really helpful. The first is that like password strength really, really matters. And you can address this either by using, you know, password phrases, right? That are that are sort of longer phrases that only you could remember. So like, well, WVU is the best 2021, you know, exclamation point or something, you know, like you, you have something longer. I'm not saying that's what, you know, Courtney's password is, but like a phrase um, of some kind can be helpful. The other way to go, the way that I actually prefer is to use a password like LastPass, for example, where you store your, you know, your, your passwords and they tend to be like more randomly generated, you know, numbers and digits that would be really hard for anyone else to get to. And, and that is going to make changing your, your passwords and keeping track of them easier. And then I would think about two-factor um, authentication mm -hmm. wherever you can use it. You already have to use it for WVU all the time. You got that Duo app. You can use it for other stuff, okay? Go ahead and, and do that. There are going to be some services that don't offer two-factor authentication. I think the last time I checked, TikTok does not, for example, but lots of services do. And whenever you can enable that option, I would really str strongly um, recommend that you do. Um, so that's another thing that you can do. If you want to check on the security of passwords and logins that you already have, there are some places that you can do that. So there's a pretty illuminating free website called haveibeenpwned.com. So it's uh, 
pwned, it's it's spelled like the word owned, right? But with a typo, people younger than us will know that immediately. So P-W-N-E-D. But that is a, a publicly available website where that keeps track of data breaches that we know about with you know different companies. And you can actually put in an email address and see, has my email address been associated with any um, data breach? I actually did this recently and... <laughs> It was it was depressing for me because there is a there's a little website that like my family uses for a gift exchange. It's called Elfster. And I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to like be unkind to Elfster, so don't come at me, big elf or or whatever. But like I my data was leaked by this gift exchange thing. And it was like relatively easy for me to change the passwords and there was no credit card information associated with it or or, or anything, but there could have been. And so maybe taking at those kinds of things would be helpful. Some other, you know, cautions I would offer that we've sort of already touched on is that, you know, I wouldn't recommend sharing accounts with other people in most circumstances. It gets really, really hard to keep, you know, if, if you would be partnered with someone and then have a breakup and then you can't remember, well, do they have the password to, to Grubhub and to Instagram and to whatever else? And so, you know, I, I just... Don't really recommend sharing those except in pretty rare circumstances. And and I trust your listeners to be able to make that judgment on their own. But uh, those are some uh, general tips that I I think are going to be useful probably, um, you know, even five years from now, which in technology terms is an eternity. (laughs) Yes. Well, that's, those are good. Those are all good tips. Well, sorry to cut off that conversation right in the middle, but as it turns out, the conversation did run a little bit long, so we're splitting up this episode into two parts. The next part will air next Wednesday, so catch up next time on Wellbeing Wednesdays, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.